always interesting to see what books sit on somebody's uh, bedside cabinets. And uh, much to the amusement of my wife, my bedtime reading of late has been Julian Barnes's latest book, which is entitled Nothing to be Frightened of. It's a book about death. Some people get to sleep reading a novel. My wife thinks I get to sleep reading a book about death. Although, reading Barnes's book, I've heard a number of quite striking things. Something remarkable about the French legal system. Up until around 20 years ago, the French state admitted only two kinds of human being on its territory. The living and the dead. Barnes puts it like this. If you were alive, you were allowed to ambulate and pay taxes. If you were dead, you had to be either buried or cremated. Now, given the limited options available, such a simple categorization of death and life doesn't seem unreasonable. And yet, actually, in 1980, the lawyers got their hand on it, and it was challenged in the French courts. A woman in early middle age was about to die of cancer, so her husband arranged for her to be cryonically frozen and placed in a refrigeration plant to await miraculous developments in medical science. The French state refused to accept that she was anything other than dead and so insisted that he either buried or cremated his wife. Well, this unusual case progressed through the French courts and eventually he was granted permission to keep his wife in the cellar. Barnes goes on to explain that a couple of decades later the husband also not quite died and was also cryonically frozen to await the marital reunion he profoundly anticipated. Technology reinterprets religion and delivers man-made resurrection. However, the French story ended recently in a grimly familiar way. Some electric malfunction raised the temperature of the bodies to a level which made return to life impossible. And the couple's son was left with every freezer owner's nightmare. (laughs) Now, Barnes is not a Christian But his book is, I think, very thoughtful. It's funny, but it is ultimately a despairing meditation on death in a universe without God. The wistful opening sentence of the book sets the tone for the entire work. I do not believe in God, but I do miss him. See, for 21st century men and women, death is the one remaining social taboo. As Barnes puts it, fear of death has replaced fear of God. Strange, isn't it, that the one universal and inevitable and inescapable reality of all our lives is so little discussed. I suspect most of us are in a perpetual state of denial. I often think one of the most striking pieces of Damien Hirst's work, his perhaps most famous piece of work, The Shark in Formaldehyde, with an astonishing title, The Physical Impossibility of Death in the Mind of the Living. The Physical Impossibility of Death in the mind of the living. For the truth is, whether young or older, most of us don't really seriously face up to death. 
As Barnes puts it in his book, nowadays we make death as invisible as possible and part of a process from doctor to hospital to undertaker to crematorium, part of a process in which professionals and bureaucrats tell us what to do up to the point where we are left to ourselves. Survivors, standing with a glass in our hands, amateurs, learning how to mourn. Truth is that the modern, secular mindset cannot deal with death. And yet death still casts an unsettling shadow over all our endeavours and our hopes and achievements. We have no other choice than to face death, but few ever really deal with death. And in my experience, much of the secular bravado about death being nothing at all evaporates when you are standing around the graveside of someone you have loved and lost. And so we come to Psalm 16. And what do we make of this Old Testament believer's meditation on life and death, writing some 3,000 years before Julian Barnes? King David, who claims that there is present joy, and future security in the God who, verse 10, will not abandon me to the grave. Death is not the end. Even in the shadow of death there can be joy, and even in the face of death there can be hope. And yet... And yet, is that really it? Is that all there is to say? Is death so easily dealt with in a flourish of religious rhetoric? See, in the face of the unbelievers' objections and the believers' doubts, merely asserting biblical truth doesn't actually persuade me of biblical truth, does it? The reality is my heart needs persuading of the truth of resurrection hope just as much as my head needs convincing of its historical reality because there is so much in life that makes me wonder whether resurrection hope is really true. A couple of months back I spent a week up in Durham helping out with a series of events that the Christian Union were putting on there engaging with the kind of questions that people are asking And every lunchtime, there were hundreds and hundreds of students that came that weren't Christians. What about the Bible? What about other religions? What about suffering? What about hell? And amongst the many, there was one, Will. First year historian. Troubled with questions about relationships and life and the meaning of life, and utterly unpersuaded that the Christian hope of resurrection was anything other than religious myth. And of course, such questioning is not confined to the academy, is it? You only have to turn on the television set. Turn on the television set on Easter Sunday and watch Coronation Street. And Ken Barlow tells his son that the resurrection may not necessarily be true. 
and warns against the indoctrination of his grandson in being taken to church. And you know, in the midst of people's questions and the media's scepticism and perhaps your own doubts, you read David's words in verse 10 and you think, is it true? Is there really a God who will not abandon me to the grave? See, anybody who has stood by the grave of someone they have loved and lost will have asked the same question. A husband, a wife, a father, a mother, a brother, a sister, a son, a daughter. Is there really a God who will not abandon me to the grave? Is it not the case that even the strongest Christian confidence can be shaken in the face of death? C.S. Lewis writes in the diary he wrote after the death of his wife, he says, I look up at the night sky. Is anything more certain than that in all those vast times and spaces, if I were allowed to search them, I should nowhere find her face her voice, her touch. She died. She is dead. Is the word so difficult to learn? Is there really a God who will not abandon me to the grave? Or Nicholas Volterstaff in his remarkable book Lament for a Son as he reflects on the death of his son in the cliving accident, he says this, it is the neverness that is so painful. Never again to be here with us. Never to sit with us at table. Never to travel with us. Never to laugh with us. Never to cry with us. Never to embrace us as he leaves for school. Never to see his brothers and sisters marry. All the rest of our lives we must live without him and only our death can stop the pain of his. See, in a world like that, the reality is that my heart needs persuading of the truth of the resurrection hope just as much as my head needs to understand that it is true. Well, I want you to notice something really striking about this psalm of David. I think an insight into what it actually means to live the secure and confident life. And you see it if you compare verses 5 and 6 with verse 1. Verse 5 and 6 expresses the remarkable confidence of a believer who knows that his life is secure. David says, Lord, you have assigned me my portion and my cup. You have made my lot secure. The boundary lines have fallen for me in pleasant places, surely. I have a delightful inheritance. You see, for David, life is secure, even in the face of death, as verse 9 and 10 make clear. So, do you see the surprise in verse 1? David says, keep me safe, O God, for in you I take refuge. Do you see the surprise? David prays for what he already possesses. 
He is secure, eternally secure, verse 5. Even in the face of death, verse 10. And yet he prays what, verse 1? Keep me safe. David prays for what he already possesses. See, compare such Bible logic with the logic of my eight-year-old son. Having lost his Doctor Who sonic screwdriver under the wheels of a passing car the other day, thousand splinters of plastic and torrents of tears, he was nevertheless promised a replacement. Until the moment that the Time Lord's tool was safely in his hand, he never stopped asking for it. And now he possesses it, we've heard nothing. Well, actually, that's not strictly true. We've heard no more petitions and pleas, just a glowing and buzzing light stick thing that is permanently shoved up your nose or in your ear. (laughs) But actually, David here, whose lot is totally secure, prays for what he already possesses, verse 1. He says, the one whose life is eternally secure, keep me safe. You read verse 5 and you think, well, he is safe. And yet David prays for what he already possesses. He prays, keep me safe, O God. Is it not a curious thing to pray for what you already possess? Why ask God to give you what he's already promised? Why ask him to keep us safe when he has vowed that nothing in all creation, not even death itself, can separate you from the love of God that is in Christ? Why? The 18th century theologian Jonathan Edwards put it like this. He says, It is manifest that we are not appointed in this duty, praying for things we already have. We are not manif- it's manifest that we are not appointed in this duty to inform God of these things, as if he has forgotten, or to incline his heart and prevail him with, with him to show mercy, as if we are praying somehow twisting God's arm around his back to give us something. Now, Edward says, this is the reason we pray. To suitably affect our hearts with the things we express and so to prepare us to receive the blessings we ask. Suitably to affect our hearts with the things we express and so to prepare us to receive the blessings we ask. You see, my heart needs persuading of the truth of the resurrection hope just as much as my head needs to understand its truth because death is a great enemy. It's a terrible reality that makes me wonder whether the resurrection hope is true. And in this psalm there is a wonderfully practical biblical wisdom for troubled, believing hearts because the Bible doesn't keep telling you things that are true and just demand that you believe them. For the Lord knows your your fears and your frailty. He knows your questions and doubts. He knows the frustrations and sorrows of your heart. And he provides you with a way to make the truth of the gospel felt in your heart as well as known in your head. See, in Christ the Lord makes your lot secure and not even death can rob you of that inheritance. And so the Lord bids you to pray for what you possess to suitably affect your heart as Edward puts it so that you live 
as David does, with the Lord always before you, verse 9, so that you will not be shaken no matter what life or death throws at you. I don't know about you, but I read this psalm and it's striking that David's prayer is so remarkably unglamorous. You think, where does this confidence come? Where does this resurrection confidence come? There's no mountaintop vision, there's no great spiritual experience, there's no secret knowledge and techniques. For David, living the secure life is about saying, it's about praising, it's about setting. So verse 2, say to the Lord, say what? Say what you know to be true. Rehearse the promises of Scripture. Not not to remind God, but to remind yourself. See, if you're a Christian, he is, verse 2, your Lord. And apart from him, you have no good thing. This glorious sunny day, your friends, your family, your home, your life, even the very breath that you have just taken. These things, whether you acknowledge them or not, are the gifts from a generous Heavenly Father. I said to the Lord, you are my Lord. Apart from you, I have no good thing. Because sometimes we feel so overwhelmed with life that the good things seem lost in the sorrowful things, don't they? Sometimes there is a darkness that descends that just will not lift. But even in the midst of great difficulty and terrible questions, it's often true that we experience the Father of compassion and the God of all comfort in the practical care and love of his people. I know that every church family is is full of sinners. It's, It's a requirement of entry. You don't have to be part of any church family for long to discover that the behaviour of Christians can be truly appalling. As one wit put it, to live above with the saints we love, ah, that is the purest glory. To live below with the saints we know, ah, that is another story. (laughs) And yet actually David says the exact opposite here, doesn't he? True, the behaviour of believers, even our behaviour, if we're honest, can be very bad. But at its best, the experience of love within the Christian community is truly wonderful. The saints of verse 3 are still sinners, but they are glorious ones in whom is all our delight. It was the love amongst Christians that first drew me to the gospel. And amidst life's sorrows and sadness, when life has been at its most difficult, it is precisely then that the love and care of other believers has been so precious and wonderful and has manifested to me the reality of the Lord's care in this troubled and troubling world. See, living this secure, confident life is about the most unglamorous of things. It is about saying, verse 2, what you know to be true. Rehearsing the promises of Scripture, not to remind God, but to remind yourself. And so we go into this week and we say with David, you are my Lord. Apart from you, I have no good thing. But living the secure life is also about praising, verse 7. I will praise the Lord who counsels me. Even at night, my heart instructs me. 
Do you see in this psalm how David contrasts true worship with false worship? True worship here, verse 7, worship that listens to God's word, to his counsel. True worship brings a transformed heart, a transformation to the whole person. But false worship, verse 4, that brings sorrow. The sorrows of those will increase who run after other gods. See, it's not just Christians that worship, is it? If we don't worship God, we will worship something or someone else. Again, here's Julian Barnes' remarkable insights as an unbeliever reflecting on what we have put in place of worshipping God. Barnes says, we, have, we encourage one another towards the secular, modern heaven of self-fulfillment. The development of the personality, the relationship which helps define us, the status-giving job, the material goods, the ownership of property, the foreign holidays, the acquisition of savings, the accumulation of sexual exploits, the visits to the gym, the consumption of culture. It all adds up to happiness, doesn't it? Doesn't it? This is our chosen myth. And almost as much of a delusion as the Christian one. See, David contrasts true worship with false. True worship listens to God's word, to his counsel. It brings a transformed heart. But false worship brings sorrow, verse 4. The sorrows of those will increase who will run after other gods. Sorrows will increase because there is no security outside the gospel of Jesus Christ. For without him, we are lost eternally. Through him, we are found and secure forever. Living the secure life? It's about saying, but it's also about praising the Lord who counsels and transforms our heart. Because praising God biblically means many things, not, not just singing. According to Hebrews 13, praise includes evangelism. We offer a sacrifice of praise in the fruit of lips that confess the name of Christ. But if biblical praise is more than singing, it, it's never less. Singing and music matter. Christians are a singing people. And so we, as we gather as God's people, we let the word of Christ dwell in us richly as we teach and admonish one another in psalms, hymns and spiritual songs with gratitude in our hearts to God. And the purpose of praising God in song? Why sing a poem rather than just read a bit of prose? We could do that Sunday by Sunday. Just read everything out. Prose, not poetry, no music. Why sing a poem rather than speak prose? Because God wants the truth that we know in our heads to be written on our hearts. Yeah, I know, I know that music can be manipulative and singing can be dangerous, but the abuse of a good gift doesn't nullify the value of the gift rightly used. Why is it then that some Christians, particularly some conservative Christians, are so ambivalent about music and so embarrassed about singing? The world's not embarrassed about singing. I've stood on the cot with thousands of people who are not embarrassed about singing. The songs of the redeemed will echo through eternity. 
And we sing now so that the truth of the gospel will transform our hearts forever. And the things that we know in our head, we will feel in our hearts. Living the secure life. It's about saying. You say to the Lord what you know to be true. You pray what you already possess. Living the secure life is about praising, verse 7. Praising the God who counsels you. And then, verse 8, setting the Lord always before you. And you go out into the world knowing that because he is at your right hand, you shall not be shaken. For there is present joy and future security, verse 9. Therefore, David says, my heart is glad and my tongue rejoices and my body will also rest secure. And yet, you know, you can say all you want and you can praise as much as you are able and you can set the Lord always before you, but if verse 10 is not true, if we and those we have loved are lost and abandoned to the grave, then Christians are to be pitied more than all men. See, if you you read Psalm 16, or, or better, if you sing Psalm 16 it's clear that David had some deep-seated confidence in the Lord who would not abandon him to the grave. And yet, for all that we can learn by looking back to David, it's clear from Acts 2 that David intended his words to point forward. For the ultimate grounds for our security is not David's confidence, but Christ's resurrection. So just as we close, just turn to that passage in Acts 2, page 1093. Verse 22. Men of Israel, listen to this. Jesus of Nazareth was a man accredited by God to you by miracles, wonders and signs, which God did among you through him, as you yourselves know. This man was handed over to you by God's set purpose and foreknowledge, and you, with the help of wicked men, put him to death by nailing him to the cross. But God raised him from the dead, freeing him from the agony of death because it was impossible for death to keep its hold on him. For David said about him, I saw the Lord always before me. Because he is at my right hand, I will not be shaken. Therefore, my heart is glad and my tongue rejoices. My body will also live in hope because you will not abandon me to the grave. Nor will you let your Holy One see decay. You have made known to me the paths of life. You will fill me with joy in your presence. Brothers, I can tell you confidently that the patriarch David died and was buried and his tomb is here today. But he was a prophet and knew that God had promised him on oath that he would place one of his descendants on his throne. Seeing what was ahead, he spoke of the resurrection of the Christ, that he was not abandoned to the grave, nor did his body see decay. God has raised this Jesus to life and we are all witnesses of the fact. 
You see, that is the hope of Easter. The empty tomb is a sign for us that he was not abandoned. So we are not abandoned. That there is eternal security because Christ is risen. And so, this evening, we gather as believers around the Lord's table and we kneel together and we hold out empty hands and we say, Keep me safe, O God. Keep me safe. That in bread and wine we take hold of by faith what we already possess, promises to taste and touch, for here and only here are we secure. And so we pray, keep me safe, O God. And as we remember the events of that first Easter, we not only pray, we praise as we will finish, I know that my Redeemer lives. What joy the blessed assurance gives. He lives, he lives who once was dead. He lives my everlasting head. He lives and grants me daily breath. He lives and I shall conquer death. He lives my mansion to prepare. He lives to lead me safely there. The secure life, it's about praying. It's about praising. It's about setting the Lord, the risen Lord, always before us. And because he is at our right hand, we shall never be shaken. Well, let's pray, shall we?